probably back in Ezra, so you might want a bit of extra time to try and find the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. It's probably not necessarily a, uh, a book that we commonly preach on and dip into, but uh, there's lots of gems in here, as we're going to find over the next few weeks. Uh, Paul kicked us off last week. Uh, I thought it was excellent. Really encourage you to listen to that if you get the opportunity over this summer to listen back to that. I think it's really helped to set the scene for what we're looking at, and, um, and I'm going to continue with... Uh, that today. So we're, we're looking at Ezra. Um, we're only going to look at the first uh, six chapters. We're going no further than that. Um, we're just delving into that. And it's not just because it fits quite nicely in a summer period, uh, which it does, but actually the, the book of Ezra, and then it kind of continues into the, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the, this whole story uh, fits together, but there are sections to it. And we're kind of taking the first section, looking at the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, which we're going to look a little bit more into today um, and uh, what that helps us with in our current day. So uh, if you did miss last week, or just as a helpful reminder, hopefully, I think the context is important for these verses. It helps us to understand what it is God is doing amongst his people and uh, helps us to um, relate that into our current day. And so the historical context is that God's people have been exiled. They've been banished from the land that which God gave them. He promised them this uh, physical place, a place where they could be as a people, and, and they've been banished from this land. They've been overthrown. And basically what happened was they uh, started to build idols and, and focus on other gods, and in the end, uh, God's judgment came, and, and he allowed them to be overthrown and exiled by the Babylonians. Importantly as well, the, the temple that they had established in Jerusalem uh, this kind of image and symbol, uh, but also place in which God met with his people. It's like the presence of God was there. It's a place of, of worship. It's a place in which it kind of symbolised all these things, but it was also the place where that happened. Um, it's probably difficult for us to, to understand that because we, you know, we're meeting in a school and we're able to worship and all those kind of things, but we'll look at that. But actually, for uh, the Israelites, the Old Testament, there was a, a physical place in which they met with God. It said, I'll meet with my people here. And that was destroyed. So huge, huge significance for the people of God. The Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, who uh, was ruled by a king called Sirius, uh, an empire that covered a significant part of the known world. And uh, King Sirius was uh, an unlikely king, if you uh, read into him a little bit, uh, unlikely king. And yet the book of Isaiah, one of the prophetic uh, promises towards God's people is that they would... Uh, they would return, they would rebuild during the time of King Sirius. And that's a hugely significant promise. Uh, uh, there's a number of these wonderful gems as you read through the Old Testament where you kind of, come, kind of become confronted by these things that are written way before uh, things happen and yet with such uh, awesome detail, which you kind of have to take a step back and think, gosh, God is at work here. Amazing uh, moments of God. Uh, that we see. So, um, you know, we often do this at Christmas, don't we, where we go, oh gosh, look, uh, the, the, the book of Isaiah particularly uh, proclaims a number of things that Jesus is going to fulfil, but it's everywhere. And I want to encourage you to, to treasure, treasure hunt through the Old Testament, see what it is that God is doing. And uh, we can be uh, more than a little bit um, reassured that God is working through. God has a plan. God is bringing about that that he has promised. So, I mentioned before that the temple, it's the place in which God's presence with his people 
is now in ruins. Their connection with God is gone, and that's the significant thing that we need to kind of understand, I think, from the start of this story. There's lots that's written around this time, lots of kind of crossover with some key people in the Bible that I'm sure we would know about. So the story of Daniel would be during the exile time in Babylon, where uh, they can pray and, and those kind of things. But then just to kind of give you an idea of the, the tone in which uh, the Israelites were feeling, uh, Psalm 137 uh, is written at a similar time. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, talking about Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lairs, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. God's people were mocked. God's people had salt rubbed in the wounds. Why don't you sing us a song from Jerusalem? Why don't you sing us one of the songs that we used to hear coming from the temple? They used to be mocked like that by their captors, but they couldn't. The place of worship was gone. Their connection with God was gone. This is the setup. This is the, the, the kind of place in which we uh, read uh, this period of history. And then we have uh, the story of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah uh, brings a prophetic word, and we can read it in the book of Jeremiah, uh, which we're not going to today, but just to give you a bit of an idea. And he prophesied that the Israelites would be exiled in the way in which they have been, but 70 years later they would return to the city and rebuild it. And again, this is with wonderful accuracy in which we're seeing this happen now in the book of Ezra. 70 years later, the people are kind of, you know, when Daniel is standing up to kings and saying, you know, I'm going to pray to God, he's thinking in the back of his head, there's a prophetic word that's come that 70 years, I'm going to see this happen. He's thinking, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe God that he is working in amongst this. So friends, this is exciting. When we read about it in the whole context of scripture, I think it around the world, the remarkable moves of God in ordering around uh, the world, really, uh, and uh, seeing the, um, the, the way in which God is working here. But I also want us to see the setup, like the way in which the, um, the people of God are feeling. You know, there's a general tone to this, and so that's kind of featured in the way that we're talking about these uh, early chapters in Ezra. The tone, if we were to read a bit further in chapter 3, we are going to look at chapter 3 today, but as you, next week, I think, whoever's doing next week. Is it Luke? You, Phil. Phil's doing next week. So the people of God, when they uh, see the foundation established, it kind of describes this moment at the end of chapter three where the heads of the family are weeping as they think about that that's happened, as the loss that's happened, and yet others are weeping. And it kind of says that, the, that those that were weeping, those that were cheering, kind of drowned each other out. There's not, like this moment where God is... Uh, answering the greatest need of his people and yet is not quite as it should be. It's kind of like this moment of significant hope in which God is answering uh, and stepping in in the way that he promised and yet at the same time it's not like hope is completely fulfilled. And so that's why we've called this series Hope Fulfilled like a question. It's like a question as to whether God has truly stepped in in the way that we fully understood, whether this is really the moment in which we can say with real confidence that, that everything is okay, or actually whether there's more to come, more that this points us to. And I think Paul did a really good job, uh, helpfully, with that last week, which we'll 
look into a little bit more. The Israelites uh, felt that they were building something for God, but at the start of this story, we see that it's God who's building something in them. It's God that's building something through his people and in his people, and ultimately it points us towards one, uh, Jesus, who comes, and in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church, not with bricks and mortar, but I will build my church, and nothing will overcome it. It won't be overthrown in the same way as this story's come, but it points us towards a saviour who says those things, one in whom we can have ultimate hope, one in whom we can have ultimate confidence. These passages are a glimpse, but it's not the full story. So Paul looked last week at the non-king leader Zerubbabel uh, that pointed us towards the king of kings. That's ultimately what he did, which was really helpful, pointed us towards Jesus, the king of kings. And this week I want to look at the priest. It's the second kind of main character in the early parts of these chapters and uh, we're in chapter three. So if you want to start finding that, I've called this morning the priest to come. That's uh, that's kind of where we're headed. Before we get there, we we are skipping a little bit. So you'll probably notice if you've been reading and following along with the book of Ezra, there's a long list of names and numbers, which I really contemplated whether to read to you this morning and I've opted to not uh, but uh, I, I've been listening to this, uh, the book of Ezra quite a number of times on the way to work, and um, I think I could nearly do it. But I'm not going to embarrass myself or anyone else by asking us to read chapter two. It's like the, the opening credits of a film, isn't it? But um, all I will say, uh, we're not going to talk about these massively, but what we will just say is that God has not got a faceless people. You know, people matter to God, these numbers are important. These verses are important. Uh, Actually, I think in Jeremiah 29, it talks about the fact that that God's people would be carried into exile, but there'll be an increase. Whilst they're they're in exile, there'll be an increase. Uh, That's the same passage that finishes, and a number of us will know, like, I know the plans I have for you. You know, this is God saying that. We quote that bit, don't we? We go, I know the plans that I have for you. Well, God knew the plans that he had for Israel, And uh, he knew that he would increase their number whilst they were in exile. So there is significance in these verses. There is, you know, it does matter. Uh, Like 11,600 survived and were exiled. But but this list talks about 42,360 returning. So that would have been significant for people that read this in the context of Jeremiah. That God has answered again. He has come good again with his promise. Uh, Each family is represented. It talks about the faithfulness of God. So we're not going there. But let's not wipe it out completely. There's a lot in there that we could learn uh, of God. So let's read together Ezra chapter 3 and uh, we'll read the first six verses. When the seventh month month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zodiac, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. As it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God, they set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it's written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everybody who made a free will offering to the Lord. 
From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So, this key character that we have here, Jeshua, the priest of Israel is mentioned in this chapter before Zerubbabel. That's important because uh, he was mentioned second previously and uh, Zerubbabel is the leader. And so uh, unlike the chapter before, we know that he is the one who's in focus. It's what he has done here that we're looking at and uh, he's leading his people in this way. So it's the priestly role that we're going to look at this morning. We looked uh, last week at the king, or who wasn't even a king, but was acting like a king and probably should have been king. He was on David's line. But, uh, but we're this morning looking at a priest. And uh, we're going to look at the fact that there's great news in what God has done in and through him. In the same way, as we saw with Zerubbabel, we're going to see that God has uh, hopes that are previously unfulfilled, that are fulfilled uh, in a greater Messiah, a greater promised one, the sign of one to come. That's what Paul did with us last week when we looked at Zerubbabel and pointed us towards the King of Kings. I've said that already. But friends, we're kind of pushing a bit of an open door with this. If you think that this is maybe, oh, you know, just coincidental or something like that, actually in Zechariah 3 verse 8, it says this. This is God speaking through Zechariah. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is God speaking, saying that actually this, this priest, this, this group of priests, are but a sign. There is one coming. He refers to the branch. The branch in, in Scripture really refers to the fact that it's the Messiah. There's a Messiah coming. You're a sign towards the Messiah. So if you think, gosh, you know, we, we did this last week. This is very similar this week. But actually, we see that God is speaking to his people, saying, no, this isn't the end of the game. This isn't the end of the story. There's more coming. I'm going to send one who is like you. You're going to point towards him. You're going to be like a sign that points towards him. But actually, the branch is coming. The Messiah is coming. And when he comes, uh, there's a greater hope that is fulfilled in him. Do we see that? So, okay, we're with me so far. So we're pushing a bit of an open door here as we look at the fact that Joshua, Joshua is the priest and he's just going to point us towards one to come, a great high priest whose name is Jesus, the Messiah. So Joshua is the priest. He's in the line of Aaron, the Levite, and therefore he's commissioned by God to oversee temple worship through sacrifices and also to teach the people scripture. Priests are mediators. They come in between uh, man and God. They uh, usher into God's presence on behalf of the people. They lead and draw people to God. They offer sacrifice for uh, worship and also for making right for sin. This is the role of the priest that we read throughout the Old Testament. This is the role in which Jeshua had uh, for his people. So this uh, passage is really important. And this passage shows us something which I think is really worth highlighting. It shows us that there was an urgency in their return to get the altar built. There's a number of things that could have been uh, established very quickly. But actually, we read here that Jeshua urgently establishes the priority of worship. He urgently establishes the corporate life 
of worship. That that was gone, that which the Israelites were mocked about, that they were kind of living in this sense of, oh, I'm in captivity, I can't even sing the songs of God anymore, that's all gone. And, and Jeshua says, look, we're going back to the place in which God has given us. And the first thing we're going to do is we're not going to, we're not going to start digging foundations. We're not going to start getting some stuff in together to try and build a temple. We're going to bring the, we need the altar of God. We need, we need worship. We need the presence of God. He's prioritising that. Now, uh, friends, it might seem a little bit of an alien concept, but then I was thinking, actually, it's not that long ago in which we felt a similar thing. A number of us would have remembered being part of a church during COVID where we were kind of locked away and unable to associate ourselves with other people. And um, it was just hard, wasn't it? And there was a sense of, you know, I quite enjoyed it initially, uh, you know, not getting dressed for church and stuff like that. I thought it was really helpful. It had some benefits, definitely. But then towards the end, I was thinking, actually, no, there's you know, a longing to be with my brothers and sisters. There's something about the corporate identity of the church when we gather together and worship, isn't there? There is, isn't there? You know, there's something special about when we gather in this way. And we were robbed of that. We missed that. You know, I remember, like, you know, thinking of that Matt Rebens song, coming back to the heart of worship. You know, it's, it's all about him. But, but when we're gathered together like this, this, this kind of corporate identity. And I guess, you know, that, that's you know, probably not a massively helpful example because the Israelites were in exile. They were being conquered. They, you know, they, they didn't know what was happening next. They had a king who was ruling over them. And yet, and yet they couldn't bring worship. They couldn't meet in this way. The place in which they could gather before God was in ruins. So although the temple was critical, although there's a number of things that are going to be important, we're going to see it's, it's the next sermon until the foundations are laid. It's uh, not until the end of the series in which the temple's rebuilt. But we see that right at the heart, Jeshua leads the people to say, no, we need the presence of God. We need the presence of God. We need to prioritise that over all other things. Above all other tasks, we need the presence of God, the centrality of worship, making him central. Yeah. Friends, there's a, lot, there's a big lesson for us in that, I think. There's a number of things that can quickly consume us, can quickly overtake us. You know, I'm awful at, um, you know, if I've got a big task to do, like DIY, I've got, I've got to paint the boys' bedroom soon and then put a couple of beds up and I'm dreading it. But I, I kind of, I'm awful at this because what I do is I, I kind of have a big project and I go straight in for the thing that I enjoy doing and don't prepare properly and all those kind of things. Um, but, but Jeshua leads the people to a place where he says, to prepare, like, how are we going to prioritise this? We're going to prioritise God and being with him and his presence above everything else. We're not going to be overwhelmed by all the other things that they're doing around us. We're not going to be overwhelmed by the cracks or the ruins in which we're meeting in. We're going to prioritise him. I was reminded as I was thinking of this, of the story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha. You've got Martha who's dashing around all busy, like trying to, trying to make everything nice. You've got Jesus who's in her house. You've got Jesus who's, who's sat in her house. His, his very presence is there. And she says, Jesus, aren't you going to tell Mary to come and help me? Aren't you going to come and... Like, she's, she's just sat with you and I'm the one dashing around doing everything. And Jesus says, no, no, come to me. Come to me. And friends, I just want to encourage us that I think there's a, there is a big part of this story which uh, is going to... Um, well, I think points towards the fact that, that you know, we too need to prioritise the presence of God in our lives.
before anything else, the priority of the priest was to bring people to God. And we need to see the importance of that as well, to prize that, to prize his presence. Now, there are challenges to this. And we read that in this story. There's challenges. that It says that they were in the fear of others. There was fear of those around them that was standing in the way of this. They're no longer in exile, but they're certainly not living comfortably. They've got other people that are going to stand in opposition, that are going to make this hard for them. This isn't the, the way in which it was previously. But there are some real positives, and I just want to draw some out. First one, we read that they gathered as one man. They gathered as one man. It says that um, they were scattered. They were scattered in, in, ultimately in judgment, they were scattered. But they're brought together as one man, as if one man. In God's mercy, he's brought people together. Last week we heard that God stirred their hearts. I think there was something wonderful about that image. But this week we see their togetherness, as if they were just one person. That kind of... only God can do. The New Testament would word it like this. It would say, you're now one new man in Christ. There's nothing that separates you. There's nothing that stands in the way. You, you gaggle of people who have ended up in Peterborough for such a time as this. It's no accident. You're one new man in Christ. You represent something that one day will be celebrated in heaven as we all gather before the risen Saviour in the mercy in which he's lavished upon us. We were scattered and yet we are brought together in wonderful unity. We read about that in Ephesians 2. He's removed everything that stands in the way. Friends, there's like this wonderful moment like we said at the beginning that hope, there's hope in this. Come back as, as one people but there's a greater hope to come in which we now live. There's unity in him. There's unity by his spirit at work. I used to walk around the city centre a lot at work. I used to be with a, a colleague who... And um, <laughs> it was really quite funny because I'd bump into different people and, and, you know, the church is full of very different people, isn't it? And uh, it was really quite funny watching how, uh, after a couple of months of saying hello to different people, my colleagues were then kind of going to me, you obviously know them from church, you obviously know them from church, as they see just this random bunch of people in which we have probably no connection other than the fact that God has won a victory over sin and death and we, have, and, and we are trophies of his grace. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And in Ezra, we see this wonderful moment right at the start. The people are returned and uh, they've been scattered, but by his mercy, they've come together. By his mercy, they are as if one man. Verse 2, we read about a obedience, a radical obedience to God. There's a precision in which they set up the altar, the exact same position. It's been built in accordance to his law. They're staying true to God's word, even though they, they have like fear of those around them. There's probably a number of things in which they could compromise. There's a number of ways in which they could do things differently. But no, it says that they are obedient to God's word. That's the second thing. It's important to see from these. They're not shifting from this. They're not taking shortcuts or accepting letters. They no, God has called us to this. God's called us to this and we're going to obey. Verse 2. And then we have this wonderful uh, list of uh, feasts and festivals from verse 4, uh, which uh, if you know your Old Testament well, you can look into a little bit more detail. Um, but there's a couple of things that I just wanted to pull out from this. 
So firstly, he talks about the Feast of Booths, which is when the Israelites remember their time in the wilderness, when they were living in tents, which would have been particularly pertinent now. They're coming back together, they're coming back as God's people to the land in which he's promised them, living in a foreign land for many decades. They would have felt quite poignant at this time. The Feast of Tabernacles, when they remember that God dwelt among his people in that time. God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. We read that in Exodus. The promise of God dwelling with his people until the Messiah comes. He mentions too the burnt offerings, which you can read about in Exodus 29. It talks about the fact that it was like a pleasing aroma before God, a constant, a food offering that was, uh, uh, Exodus 29 verse 42 says, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. You know, it's, it's the place in which God meets with his people. You know, there's significance in this. These are offerings that would have meant something to the Israelite people. These were uh, things in which Ezra's kind of trying to highlight and say, look, you know, we've come back at a specific time. We've come back at a specific time. There's no accident in this. This is the time in which the festivals were taking place. This is a, a time in which we, we, you know, we've arrived and not gone, oh gosh, it's the seventh month, we ought to do this. You know, there's significance in that God has orchestrated for such a time as this. And there's significance in these festivals. We read that, that God uh, met with his people. He met with his people at the tent. It's about relationship. It's about being together. We see in the Feast of Booths that they lived in Booths for 40 years and God lived with them. He was tabernacled with them. He, he came to be with his people in that time and that's what they celebrate. They look back on and they go, God, you're so faithful. You were with us even in the wilderness. And now they've come out of that place of exile. They're back in this new place and they're celebrating the fact that, God, you're with us. God, you're with us in this way. It's hugely significant. There's no accident in this. It's a, a massive celebration for the Israelites as they remember God dwelling with his people, in which God has rescued them and dwells with his people. But friends, there's a lot of hope in that, isn't there? You can see there's a lot of hope in the way in which that's unravelled, but there's more. If we follow that thread on, Jesus, speaking at the same festivals many years later in John 7, says this, speaking at the same festival. So see the, see the significance in that. He speaks at the same time. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit with whom, he, with whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit has not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus said there's a moment coming and has now come when you will be satisfied as if thirsty and, and given water, where the spirit will be alive within us. No booths, no altars, nothing. It will be the gushing, living life of God within our hearts. That's what Jesus promised at this same festival. Friends, we see like a glimmer of hope as Jeshua takes the people back to Jerusalem for such a time as this, to point to the fact that God dwells with his people. And then many years later, Jesus stands up and says, friends, there's something much better. You will know the closeness of God, not by coming to an altar, not by living in a booth, but by the very life of God within you, the spirit 
within you. Friends, this is beautiful, isn't it? As we see hope is fulfilled in the priestly role of Jesus, the person of Jesus. There's a much better way. Jesus spoke these things, didn't he? He says, better that I go, because I'm going to send one. I'm going to send the Spirit. And here he is saying, you know, we're talking about the fact that God is with his people, but friends, you're going to know a much greater experience than that. You're going to know something much greater. You're going to know the life of God within you, gushing out. Out of you will flow living water. What a wonderful saviour we have. So how do we respond to these verses? Well, there's an idea that I think I flagged quite early on. The idea of it's okay to be a work in progress before God. It's okay to be a work in progress. We come to him and he establishes relationship with us by his grace. And it's through Christ that we stand. And the rest of that journey is, is full of ups and downs. And we're going to see that throughout even this series. Lots of ups and downs for the people of God. But it's important that we see uh, very early on that, that there's an urgency. There's a, an importance in establishing relationship with God and prizing that relationship with God. It's okay for other things to be in ruins. It's okay for other things to be on the floor. You know, they didn't even have the stuff ordered to build up the temple. No foundations built. The thing that was important was the presence of God yeah. and coming before him. Jeshua made a start, but he was left with unmet expectations. The rest of the temple was in rubble, fear of others, still under occupation, not in complete freedom, not like the glory days of before. But in Christ, he truly brings us to God. We read reading Hebrews and I'll, um, I'll read a section, but you can read through Hebrews yourself. This is full of uh, the priestly role of Christ. But it talks about a great high priest, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 onwards says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness, but, we, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jeshua led the Israelites broken back to the altar, but Jesus uh, is one who sympathises with our weakness and leads us boldly, boldly to approach Christ, to approach God. Jesus leads us boldly before God. There's no need to wait for other areas to be in line. However we feel this morning, we are uh, ones who follow a high priest Jesus, we're not in Jeshua. Dwelling place of God is with us. Sacrifice is complete and we can boldly come before him. Let me just read one more section of Hebrews before we finish and I want to take communion. Ultimately, I think I just want to finish by drawing us to worship. I think that seems like the most appropriate place to land as we uh, finish up together. Christ, our great high priest, the better Jeshua. Speaking of Jesus' sacrifice, as we start to think about communion, we're going to take communion in a couple of moments, and we remember that uh, Jesus uh, was killed, was executed, and is alive again. And, and he has promised, as we've read already in John 7, uh, that those who believe in him will have life, and life in abundance through what he has promised. But he 
uh, invited his disciples to do this, those who follow him, those who have put their faith and trust in him to take communion as an act of remembrance until he comes back for his people. Hebrews 9, talking of the great high priest Jesus, uh, verse 24 almost says, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copy of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, a mediator. We talked about that at the beginning. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. Friends, as we take communion in a few short moments and <clears throat> go into a time of worship, I wonder if you would just want to dwell on those verses. I'm going to pray for us as we finish off. Christ is the great fulfilment of the partially met promises of God that we read about in Ezra. Christ is the fulfilment. He is the great high priest who stands between God and man. He is the dwelling place. Uh, and it's, it's in him that we can know God. What a wonderful saviour that we have. Let me just pray and then the band can lead us. When you feel ready, you can take communion in your own time and then the band will lead us. Father, we thank you so much for a, a glimpse as we've read in Ezra, just a glimpse, a sign of one to come, one uh, who is a, great, is a much greater priest, one in whom we can have full hope we can be so assured in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection on the cross. We can be uh, those who stand in such hope, recognising that it's all accomplished by your victory. And what a wonderful saviour you are. We thank you for this story. We thank you for uh, the way in which it just points us to our need for one who is better, uh, one in whom our hope can truly rest. We ask that you'd help us with that. In your precious name. Amen.